Hi, this is Kara Kowalczyk. I'm a third-year pediatrics resident at Indiana University, and I'm here today with Dr. Stephen Psycho, who's an associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Indiana University. And we're going to be talking about head and central nervous system injuries. So, Dr. Psycho, can you tell me what some of the signs and symptoms associated with closed head injuries are? So, probably the most common is altered level of consciousness, not acting right, um, but you can go on from there to have even more severe signs. You can have unequal pupils. You can have abnormal vital signs, especially bradycardia. Um, and then you always want to think about what the GCS of a patient is. And I know that basilar skull fractures are something really important that we think about in head injuries. Can you remind us of what some of the physical exam findings are when a patient has a basilar skull fracture? Absolutely. So a basilar skull fracture is a fracture that involves the temporal bone or the occipital bone or the ethmoid bone. And fractures in these locations most commonly will cause what's called raccoon eyes or periorbital ecchymoses. Um, you can also have what's called battle sign, which is ecchymoses over the mastoid. And then another thing to look for always in these patients is um, evidence of hematotympanum or blood behind the tympanic membrane. Sometimes I hear people talk about blood in the ear canal, but it's not just blood in the ear canal, but also um, seeing that very dark purple tympanic membrane that's hematotympanum. Um, things that you really worry about are uh, CSF leaks, um, either from the ear or the nose, because that puts people at a high risk for meningitis. And then with more severe um, uh, fractures, you can also have uh, individual cranial nerve palsies that can be seen. And one of the ways that you can identify that is with hearing loss. I know that closed head injuries can be pretty serious in kids. What are some of the immediate life-threatening complications of closed head injuries? So just like with any trauma, the first thing you want to do is look at your ABCs, so airway, breathing, and circulation. Um, if you have a low GCS, um, you want to consider intubation to protect the airway. Um, most patients with a GCS of 8 or less will end up intubated, and you want to consider it in patients who have a GCS between 9 and 12 or who seem to be deteriorating. Um, anyone who's having respiratory distress or hemodynamic instability should also be intubated. Um, and then remember that kids with hypotension on their initial presentation have a poor outcome. Um, so you want to make sure that you keep people hydrated and try to keep the blood pressure up in these patients to try to maintain cerebral perfusion. In a patient that we suspect a closed head injury, what is the diagnostic evaluation that we should do in the emergency department? So CT scan is the preferred head Im imaging of patients who you suspect closed head injuries in the emergency department. Um, it's quick, readily available, and uh, it's very good at identifying both fractures and acute blood, which appears white on a CT scan. MRI has limited utility. Number one, it's not as quick. Number two, Young kids need sedation because it's a longer procedure and you may not want to affect uh, a patient's mental status by sedating them. Um, and you may not be able to identify acute blood as readily with an MRI. Which kids should we be obtaining head imaging on? So you want to think about head in imaging in kids who are at higher risk for intracranial injury. Um, probably the 
biggest and most widely used study is the PCARN closed head injury study that you may have heard about. Um, PCARN is a collaborative group of pediatric emergency medicine researchers who work together to um, come up with best standards of care. And so there are uh, low, intermediate, and high-risk um, kids that are that vary by age. So in the PCARN um, closed head injury criteria, they looked at kids who are less than two as well as greater than two. And what they found is that kids who were at low risk, who were under age two, had a GCS of 14 or 15, or acting normally according to the parents, didn't have any obvious palpable skull fracture, no large scalp hematomas um, other than in the frontal region, no loss of consciousness for greater than five seconds, less than five seconds did not put them in a high risk um, criteria, um, and did not have a severe mechanism of injury, which included a height fall from about three feet onto a hard surface. So in a patient who meets the low-risk criteria, you don't have to do a head CT in those kids, and most of them can be discharged, assuming they're tolerating PO and acting normally. So then under the PCARN study, what makes a patient high-risk? So high-risk kids in um, children who are under the age of two are kids who aren't acting normally, who have a scalp hematoma that's temporal, um, parietal, occipital, who have an obvious palpable bony abnormality, um, or who have had a severe mechanism of injury, so a fall greater than three feet, striking a solid hard object, um, something like that. And those kids' CT scan is indicated, but it's important to know that with the PCARN study, even kids in the high-risk group had under 5% chance of having a clinically important traumatic brain injury that required any kind of intervention. How about kids who are older than two? So in kids who are older than two, the two big differences were that vomiting was found to be important, whereas in kids under the age of two, vomiting wasn't important as an indicator of a clinically important traumatic brain injury, as well as having a severe headache, mostly because kids who are older than two could actually describe or explain that they had a severe headache. Again, kids who had uh, you know, a normal GCS who were acting normally according to the parents who had a low-risk injury, which in older kids is five feet instead of three feet, and who weren't complaining of a headache and had not had vomiting and had no loss of consciousness, those kids can be observed and then discharged from the emergency department. Kids who had those features were, again, in the high-risk category, and those kids did, um, the recommendation was to scan them. How can we quickly remember these criteria when we encounter a patient with a suspected head injury in the emergency department? So the PCARN criteria are pretty widely available nowadays. Um, the two uh, graphs that were in the original paper can be found online, and there are also online resources that you can go to where you can actually plug in your patient the symptoms they're having, and it'll risk stratify them according to the PCARN criteria. A lot of applications on phones also have similar features. So in patients with a concern for a head injury, what other workup should we consider? 
So for head injuries, you want to think about any other injury that may go along with it because these patients may be altered. They may not be able to tell you that something else hurts. So doing a good full examination, um, making sure that you examine all the long bones to make sure that there are no fractures, making sure that you do a good examination of the chest, listening for muffled heart sounds, um, in a patient, for example, who had a bicycle injury um, where they may have you know, concern for bleeding in the chest, a hemothorax, pneumothorax, and then a good abdominal examination because handlebar injuries and other abdominal injuries are still possibilities. You want to tailor your workup then to a trauma evaluation as opposed to anything specific for head injury. So speaking of thinking of the patient as a whole, I know that child abuse is something that we unfortunately commonly see in the emergency department. Can you remind everyone of the findings that might make you suspicious for child abuse? Absolutely. So child abuse can very commonly present as head injuries. Um, And so if you do a CT scan on a patient and you find evidence of acute on chronic or subacute subdurals, that may be an indicator. Bruising in unusual locations or unusual patterns Most kids uh, bruise in the forward location, so the forehead, the um, elbows, the knees, parts of the body that are going forward, and then kids fall. So if you see bruising on the back, if you see bruising on the buttock, if you see bruising on the um, sides of the scalp, those are all areas that you worry about. You also worry about the ears. Bruising on the ear is highly associated with non-accidental trauma. And then any other findings or um, symptoms that don't seem to really fit the mechanism that you're hearing about or injuries that seem out of proportion to the kind of um, accident that a child had would make you suspicious for child abuse. In those cases, always remember that we're all mandated reporters with the state, and so it's your duty and obligation to report any suspicion for child abuse. And it just has to be suspicion. You don't have to know for sure. Such a great point. Never forget about child abuse when dealing with head trauma. Remember bruises in strange locations like earlobes, back, trunk, and stories that don't seem consistent with the uh, injuries that you're presented with. These are red flags and you should make sure that you report any suspicion of child abuse so that this can be further investigated. Remember that the morbidity and mortality of NAT is high and this is a can't-miss diagnosis. What are the significance of linear skull fractures in infants? So linear skull fractures are more common with injuries in the temporal or the parietal region because the bone is thinner in these areas. Somewhere between 15 and 30 percent of linear skull fractures are associated with intracranial injury. Um, However, most linear skull fractures heal without any complications. There are some rare complications that can occur, um, including subgaleal or epidural um, hematomas that can develop. So you want to make sure that, you know, if you suspect a linear skull fracture, you go ahead and image that child. Can you remind us what exactly an epidural hematoma is and what the features of it are and how to manage it? Sure. So epidurals are hemorrhage in the space between the dura and the overlying calvarium. Um, Morbidity and mortality in these patients results from mass effect on the brain. And the classic presentation is 
an initial loss of consciousness followed by a lucid period where kids are acting pretty normal and then a transient slow decline in mental status. And what is a subdural hematoma? So a subdural hematoma is hemorrhage in the potential space between the dura and the arachnoid membranes. Um, Abusive head trauma is a common etiology in kids, especially under the age of two. Um, However, it's a finding that you can see in kids who have had any kind of head trauma. And lastly, can you remind us uh, what Cushing's triad means? Yeah, so Cushing's triad is the triad of bradycardia, hypertension, and irregular respirations that occurs with increased intracranial pressure. Cushing's triad is bad news. If your patient with a head injury has hypertension, bradycardia, and abnormal respirations, they are at risk for herniation. You should take immediate steps to decrease their intracranial pressure prior to herniation. Thank you so much, Dr. Psycho, for reviewing head injuries and central nervous system injuries in kids. You're welcome. It was great to do this. 